everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with the great Ian O'Connor to talk about his new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Ian is a multi-time New York Times best-selling author, and I think it is clear that Coach K is headed uh, for that list. Ian has written uh, the definitive biography on Bill Belichick, a Derek Jeter biography, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and his first book, which was we spent a year kind of writing parallel books on high school basketball. It was called The Jump. It was on Sebastian Telfair, and who was at the time a legendary high school player in Brooklyn. And there was a year Ian and I would go, I would drive to Jersey City every day to do a book on Bob Hurley called The Miracle of St. Anthony, and of course, St. Anthony High School Basketball. And and Ian would go to Brooklyn and we would compare notes. We always joked we saw two very different sides of high school basketball <laughs> in that year. You were smart, Adrian, and, and thanks so much for having me on. It's it's an honor. You were smart enough to stay in New Jersey. For one, I had to cross two two rivers to uh, to get to where I was going, and and also to to basically profile in your uh, New York Times bestseller, which sold probably ten times the amount of copies that the Jump did. Uh, in Bob Hurley, who you know may go down as one of the two or three, he will go down as one of the two or three greatest high school coaches of all time. He's how many high school coaches are in the Hall of Fame? Three, three, something like yeah, that. I think three. He, so, Morgan Wooten, and one other. Yeah, and and you just it was an amazing, amazing book. And I, my book really on Telfair wasn't on Telfair. It was it was more about the process. Now Telfair was the vehicle to tell that story right. at the time. You had agents, you had sneaker companies, you had. Rick Pitino and Louisville. You had a kid who, of course, back then you could jump straight from high school to the NBA, trying to get his family out of a fairly difficult situation in the projects of Coney Island. So it was it was really uh, Telfair was the human face of the process and how crazy it was back then. And obviously, in retrospect, he he should have played one or two seasons in college and Pitino would have been probably the perfect coach for him, but uh, didn't uh, work out either for Telfair or that book. But uh, I, I felt like I really it was like a starter house for me. I taught myself how to write a book. It was a very valuable experience. It was a crazy roller coaster ride, fittingly enough, from in, in Coney Island. And I really did learn how to write a book in that process. Well, you've become it, it was a great book and you've become, you know, really the uh, preeminent, you know, uh, certainly one of the preeminent sports biographers uh, in this country. I mean, I think, you know, I think of you, I think of Mark Kriegel, um, and, and it's, it's a short list and, and the Belichick book was, you know, a, a bestseller, tremendous. And, and you come back to basketball for this book though. Like you said, your first book was, um, Telfair, you come back with coach K and there, there's a lot I want to get into Ian. And, and I think, I think especially for our audience to some of the areas that kind of touch more on the NBA, his Team USA experiences. He he held that job almost like you saw foreign coaches hold national team coaches, places where there's one preeminent coach and they keep the job for decades, uh, for years. Krzyzewski did that um, by coaching the Olympic team uh, several times and then uh, and then obviously had some some offers to go to the NBA at different times and and obviously, he had a program that was sent some of the some of the era's era's best players into the NBA. But but I want to start here, Ian. Why Shashevsky? 
Why, why Shashevsky for this biography? You know, it's interesting, Adrian. I was not planning on doing another book off of Belichick on an iconic coach. And uh, my agent, David Black, was talking to my publishing house at the time, which was Houghton Mifflin, and now part of HarperCollins. And I was thinking, could there be... Tiger Woods was always in my head. Unfortunately, Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict did a great book on Tiger. And I thought it was too soon to come back with another bio on him. Kicked around LeBron a little bit. Has there really been a definitive book on his life? And and they came back to me with, what about Coach K? And initially, I was hesitant because do I want to do back-to-back books on legendary coaches? And the more I thought about it, I was there for his biggest moment in Philadelphia, the Leitner shot against Kentucky, arguably his biggest moment. You could say 91 UNLV maybe really was his biggest moment. And I was there for that as well. So I was always fascinated by by him, how he did it at Duke for so long. And being that I was there for a decent amount of the Hurley Leitner Hill era, which of course turned Duke into what it is today and was there for the transition from a team that was like the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. They could not win the big one. And and Mike was basically Marv Levy before Marv Levy. He would get to the Final Four, the National Championship game, and they would lose to a, I guess, a juggernaut. And and frankly, and I know you covered Jerry Tarkanian back in the day better than anyone ever has uh, in Fresno. But when uh, when I was on the Vegas plane, flying from Las Vegas to Indianapolis for that final four in 91. And that was the best college basketball team I've ever seen. They were unbeaten. They had that long winning streak covering two seasons going into that final four. I felt like that was the transition, that flight from where Duke was before, where they couldn't win the big one to where they were heading. And I remember Tarkanian saying to me on the plane, and I was sitting next to him, not for the entire flight for say 20 minutes. And he said, I am, terrified of Leitner. We don't have anybody to cover him. And I just thought he knew I was going to write something about the flight. I thought he was just telling me that as an overdog coach who was trying to act concerned. And as it turns out, he was right. They had nobody to cover Leitner. George Ackles tried and Larry Johnson, I think, was in there as well. But so uh, that ended up being an epic game and the turning point in the Duke program. So just being, say, on that plane in those buildings when it turned for Krzyzewski, and given the fact, I mean, frankly, this is certainly nothing profound, but my, my agent and publishing house was very interested. I decided, okay, I'll do it. And so I did it. And, and you, and I've, I've read a good part of the book. I just got it in the mail probably about 36 hours ago. And I, I haven't been able to put it down. I, I mean, I knew it was going to be good. I think people may have seen some of the excerpts early. The book just, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, uh, it's just released this week, and so you can get it. Uh, you can go online, obviously, Amazon, the traditional places, bookstores. Um, but, you know, it's similar to the Belichick biography. Um, the subject, Ian, did not cooperate, but also did not stand in your way, meaning he did not tell those around him, hey, don't talk to Ian O'Connor, which could make it really difficult to recreate somebody's life and I think that gave you the playing field to still go out and really report this. I think over 250 interviews. And then there's a lot of, you know, with a life like Belichick and then a life like Shashevsky, there's a lot of material from them. They've talked a lot. 
and they've had there's a lot of material to draw from they've done a lot of other interviews that can complement your own reporting which is exhaustive and there's so much new stuff in this book starting with the relationship with Bob Knight the deterioration uh, really evaporation of the relationship with Knight you know from that which is an older story people have known about that for decades but you really the your reporting is uh deep on that and and really gets to the core of it and then more recently the process that led to John Shire becoming the coach in waiting at Duke and the fact that Tommy Amaker had been the school's choice Mike Shashevsky had uh, essentially nixed it and essentially got Tommy Amaker to back off of it John Shire gets the job and he'll take over for him but how about the process, Ian, of reporting out this book? And you're always at, often at the mercy of the willingness of those around someone and their rivals and others to talk about them. How open were people about really digging into what was several, you know, I mean, decades and decades of of a coaching career that spanned from West Point to Team U to Duke, Team USA, and and, and now uh, the end here at Duke. Well, to start with, Woj, I, I find that a lot of people are fascinated by the process in doing a book and and unauthorized biographies. And Belichick not only didn't talk to me, Belichick actively called people and had others call people to tell them not to talk to me. Oh, he did. OK. Oh, yeah. He he went out of his way to do everything. He I mean, just like with his players, I felt like one of his players. He put all these hurdles in front of me. and I think he made me better. And at the start of that process, I, I'll say this. I kind of knew some people he would tell not to talk, but he was there. Somebody came up to me. I'm not going to mention his name who was barely in Belichick's life. And he told me he got a phone call. Don't talk to Ian O'Connor. And the guy was not in Bill's life for 20 years. I mean, so it was amazing, but I, I, it, it sort of reinvigorated me in a sense. And I just, there were so many challenges in front of me. I felt like I was standing at the base of Mount Everest looking straight up at the start of that process and so I pitched around it as much as I could. And frankly, there were people that he warned or asked not to talk to me that did talk to me. They just didn't. They just said, hey, just don't use my name, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about his life and my part in it. Krzyzewski uh, up front. Now, he didn't say it in these terms, but I, I, I've always believed he wanted to write his own book in retirement. And so I think in a nice way, he said to me, we were at Madison Square Garden and he said, listen. I think this is what he meant. He said, effectively, why should I give you all of my stories for free when I don't have editorial control? And I don't have a good answer to that question. I'm not sure he should. Like, why? I don't know if I'd do that. Would you do that? Well, I'm sure at some point somebody's going to want to write a book about your life and maybe you'll do it. But uh, I'm not sure I'd cooperate without editorial control. So so I didn't have any great answers for him. And but he did not. He said, I won't block anybody. Now, I suspect that his wife and three daughters were off limits and they're really the same one and the same and, and, and part of a team. And so they didn't the wife, uh, Mickey and the three daughters did not talk to me. But outside of that, he, he lived up to his word. He did not. I talked to all of his close friends from Chicago growing up, his close friends in coaching, his adversaries, of course, which wouldn't they wouldn't listen to Coach K anyway if he asked them not to talk. And and so I felt like the challenge was still pretty intense. I feel like the Patriots are the Kremlin. And Duke is a little bit more like the CIA, a little more user friendly. And <laughs> and so I was able to get in there and 
Listen, I did ask some of these people tough questions. I'm sure they went back to Krzyzewski and said, hey, he asked about this. He asked about Pinehurst when you and Knight had that final encounter, incident, whatever you want to call it. And he knew that I knew about Pinehurst. And he had very good reason to, to, to know that I knew about the Amaker Shire thing, too. And I was very transparent with Duke. I was trying to give them opportunities left and right to comment on or off the record about some of these things that are in the book. So, so they knew what I knew and what I was planning on writing. The Pinehurst, you, you talk about Pinehurst, the golf club in North Carolina, where there was a essentially a West Point reunion, right, Ian? A West Point reunion. Right, it was reunion. a 50-year reunion yeah. of Knight's first team at West Point. Well, let's get into that since you, you, you brought it up and, and set the stage for that scene, um, for that weekend, what had led up to it, and then essentially – Maybe the break, the breaking point that the Knight Shashevsky relationship reached uh, on that weekend, um, really not that long ago. Yeah, and and listen, I should have issued this disclaimer earlier. As I'm telling these stories, I do acknowledge that basically you know all of this stuff already, Adrian. So I guess I'm talking a little bit to to your vast audience. I, I didn't know. I didn't know about that, Pinehurst. <laughs> I don't think anybody so, knew outside of his inner no. circle knew about that weekend. Right. But as we get into the Olympic stuff and, and part of the reason why there was a fracture, a permanent fracture in the relationship, ultimately uh, it, with with Krzyzewski and Knight, I, I know, you know, basically all this stuff. So anyway, uh, that disclaimer aside, the, uh, the the Olympic thing was a big part of their uh, the friction between them and the fact that uh, two things. One, Knight did not believe. And he told I had a, a, a rock solid source who spent so many days and nights and years with uh, Knight, and and that person said we would go on car rides for four hours, and three and a half of the hours Knight would be shredding Shashevsky in the car, and over uh, the Olympic thing was a big thing. He felt you coach it once and you hand that thing off. It is not a lifetime appointment. And so when Kay coached again in London in twelve and in Rio in sixteen, Knight thought that was BS, and he should have handed it off to Popovich. And so th so he was upset about that. He was upset about the fact that going into 08, hey, listen, I got you the Army job way back when. I helped you get the Duke job. I hired you at Indiana in the mid-70s as a grad assistant on arguably the greatest team at the time that anyone had ever seen, or certainly right there with John Wooden's best teams at UCLA. And, and I raised you in this business. I helped you get the Duke job. I also put you on my Pan Am Games staff, although that ended up being a disaster. Uh, of a different sort uh, in Puerto Rico in 1979 when Knight punched a, a police officer. Uh, but I, I did all this for your career and I'm asking you for, for one small little part-time job scouting international opponents for the 2008 Beijing games. And this source told me, I heard two different accounts of this, but I believe this source. One account was that Krzyzewski said no. The other account that I believe to be true is Krzyzewski just didn't return the phone call. And so Knight was really upset about that. I, I did more for you than I did for my own children. <laughs> and I asked you for one thing down the road. You know, Knight's career was basically over at uh, Texas Tech and I got nothing from you. So Pinehurst is a reunion, 50 year reunion of his first army team. And this is so 2015 at Pinehurst. And they had so many little flare ups in their relationship over the years that Going into that reunion, I'm not sure what the last one was, but 
Kay had reason to believe the night may not give me the warmest greeting, but they were not on terrible terms at that time. So I think he was caught off guard. He walks into the ballroom and Knight's at a corner table and he goes up to the corner table and Knight completely ignores him, just blows him off and effectively just turns away from him and <laughs> just doesn't have any conversation with him. And Krzyzewski just pivoted and walked directly out of the room. Two or three of his West Point teammates from back in the day followed him out of the room. And he said, that is the last bleeping time I ever tried with this guy. I am done. Now, he had said that before. He said that as far back, Woj, as 96 in Madison Square Garden where uh, Duke played Indiana. And before that game, Knight hid behind a curtain so he didn't have to shake Krzyzewski's hand. And there's Mike standing near the Indiana bench. And Knight is hiding with Frank McLaughlin of the NIT behind a curtain doesn't want to come out and shake his hand. So there had been moments where Krzyzewski had told people, I'm done with this guy. Pinehurst was the first time where he really meant it. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. You shouldn't have to worry when you buy tickets to your next big event. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater events near you. Game Time is the only ticketing app that gives you complete peace of mind with your purchase. See the views from your seat before you buy, so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the start of the event, and even an hour after it starts, it's the place to find last-minute seats. And the game time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Take the guesswork out of buying tickets with game time. Download the game time app, create an account, and use code WOJ, W-O-J, for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, and redeem code WOJ, W-O-J, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. How much of, in, in all your interviews, and I know you talked to a lot of people close to Knight, close to Krzyzewski, how much of it was that Krzyzewski reached a point where maybe deep down Knight knew it, and certainly in the public consciousness, he had surpassed him? That people saw Knight is the greatest coach. I mean, Wooden was his own separate thing. There was a different level of longevity, I guess, with Knight Shashevsky. But that some of it was just he had surpassed him. And Knight didn't handle that very well. No question, Woj, when a mentor is surpassed by his or her protege, it is a very difficult thing to deal with in that relationship. And frankly... Knight had more respect for Krzyzewski as a coach than he did for Wooden. He thought Wooden benefited from a, a booster who took care of his players. 
with things that were improper under NCAA law. And he did not believe that Krzyzewski did that or benefited from that. So he, as, as a coach and the way he ran his program, Knight actually respected Coach K more than he did Wooden. So, uh, but, hey, Coach K, there were two things that happened in 92, and I know you're aware of this, but Knight started seeing all these quotes in different articles about how K, hey, listen, I'm not just a creation of Bob Knight. He did a tremendous amount for me, but it's not like I call him before every game for strategy tips and, and so forth and game plan advice. And, and other people have shaped me. It's not just Bob Knight. So he was creating, as he started winning and winning and winning some more at Duke, he was creating more and more distance between himself, his career, and his legacy, and Knight's. And Knight was reading this stuff. <laughs> and I think the, what sent him over the edge was right before that Final Four game in 92, Indiana-Duke, in uh, the Metrodome, Knight read a, a Sports Illustrated article by Curry Kirkpatrick where there was an anonymous quote from a Shashevsky friend basically saying the relationship is over. And I, I'm pretty sure Coach K wasn't even quoted confirming that. But Knight flipped out. He cut out that article. He circled the quotes. He stuffed it in an envelope with a note. And there was a guy on the Duke staff named Colonel Tom Rogers who had been with uh, Knight and Shashevsky at West Point. So uh, Knight walks up to Colonel Rogers and hands him this envelope and says, give this to Mike. I think he wanted to give it to him before the game just to screw him up. Right. But Colonel Rogers was smart enough to hold on to this baby until after the game, right? So, of course, Duke wins. Knight does a total Belichickian drive-by handshake after the game. And you could tell, if you look at the tape, Krzyzewski's a little stunned that he just got this drive-by. And then he does his presser. After his press conference, he's walking past Knight in the hallway. Knight completely ignores him. And, and I believe Knight congratulated Hurley and Leitner for their performances, but blew off Mike. And then Colonel Rogers gives, <laughs> gives Krzyzewski the envelope. He opens it, and really he was blown away. Basically, the envelope, the note said, you better remember who got you your bleeping jobs and what I did for you. And he, Knight saw it as an act of portrayal. And I have an on-the-record quote from Digger Phelps in the book, who's, who's close to Knight saying, and this was an answer to a direct question about Krzyzewski and that relationship. He said, if Knight believes you are disloyal, you're done. Loyalty is a huge thing with Bob Knight. So, and of course, Bob Knight has been disloyal to a lot of people. Right, it's a one-way street it's with It's a total one-way street, right? So, so anyway, you, you'll get a kick out of this uh, anecdote. So Krzyzewski is blown away. He looks white as a ghost. His wife, Mickey, approached him. What's wrong? He just won the a Final Four game. And he, I think he, he read her or handed her the envelope. So later on that night, He's in his hotel suite. The Duke staff is in there. Now they got to play the Fab Five Monday night, less than 48 hours for the national title. And Krzyzewski is morose. And Mike Bray walks in and he sees the look on his face and he said, what's wrong? Mike Bray, of course, now the head coach at Notre Dame, then an assistant at Duke. And, and so he's informed about what happened. And Bray's the one who snapped Kay out of it. He said, bleep night. He wants you to feel this way. He wants you to lose Monday night. Screw that. We can't let that happen. And so people in the room told me that really Krzyzewski was in tears over this note. And, and Bray's the one who got him back focused on Michigan Monday night for the national championship. And, of course, Duke won that game. But that was the, the beginning of the real end of that relationship. Now, it's, it's fascinating uh, stuff. And, again, it speaks to, you know, the really the deep reporting uh, in this book, Ian, and we talk about the Olympics and sort of the, I think with Knight Shashevsky, Knight coached 
you know, really, you know, some people talk about that 1984 Olympic team with Knight in Los Angeles with Michael Jordan. And, you know, it was, it was a dominant team. Uh, the Russians weren't there. They had boycotted the Olympics. Uh, I don't think it would have mattered. Um, Knight coached that one team. He had been, you know, he had helped Henry Iba. Or he was close with Henry Iba, who had been a previous Olympic coach. But 2006, Krzyzewski takes over Team USA. They're at the bottom. You know, we were in, you know, I was in Athens when I think you were, I think we were both in Athens, right, Ian? In yeah, you, you, you were there for the Puerto Rico disaster. It, the, before, the most incredible the basketball right? game I think I've ever seen. <laughs> Puerto Rico, Team USA. And it was an Iverson, Marbury backcourt. Richard Jefferson, uh, my colleague at ESPNL, Richard Jefferson was a starting three small forward in the first game against Puerto Rico. And, I mean, Puerto Rico had uh, Carlos Arroyo. Thank you. They, they also had a guard from Marist named, uh, was it Bobby Joe Hatton? Was he on that team? No, and they had a guard from Hofstra. I was at the Bergen record then. And... They had a guard from North Bergen who scored, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 points a game at Hofstra, <laughs> who was taking Team USA, who was helping with Carlos Arroyo to take US the USA team apart. And it was just, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the stands with a lot of the USA, I think Rod Thorne, Billy King, the, the, team, the USA basketball board members. You know, Larry Brown had, from the moment the team left, um, the United States to go toward the Olympics. He hated the roster and, and <clears throat> looking back with fairly good reason. Um, but he did have Tim Duncan, <laughs> who was constantly in foul trouble. And I remember when they finally, I don't know, I think they won a bronze, Ian. I they did. They yeah, you're right. out a bronze. Yeah. And I remember Tim Duncan sitting there. It was called the mix zone where you go in and talk to guys. And Tim Duncan had just been in foul trouble the whole Olympics. And he just said, like, FIBA sucks. FIBA sucks. He's talking about FIBA basketball. <laughs> and Popovich was an assistant. And I think ultimately Popovich's association with that team did not help his candidacy. He was a Larry Brown disciple. <laughs> no. It did not help his candidacy for the national team job. Jerry Colangelo took over. I think he wanted a clean break. He was very close to Krzyzewski. Popovich and Colangelo were rivals, Spurs, Suns. There was no love between those organizations, really, or those two people at the time. And that itself, I remember writing about this process at the time. You know, Colangelo felt, or Popovich felt, he accepted that they hired Mike Krzyzewski over him. Mike Krzyzewski was incredibly accomplished. He had no issue with Colangelo choosing Mike Krzyzewski as the head coach. He had issue with the process, and he had issue with, Colangelo had said a few things publicly including that he wasn't sure how much Popovich really wanted the job. He seemed burned out by being there in 04 and Shishef and, and Colangelo got very angry with that, sent a letter. I remember I reported on a letter that he sent to Colangelo basically saying, stop talking about me. You hired Mike. That's fine. Stop talking about me in this job. And so I think part of two, Keeping Shashevsky in the job all those years, it was a way for Colangelo to not, because he knew Pop had to be the next coach. There was no getting around it. And <laughs> the longer he and Shashevsky stayed together, he didn't have to deal with Pop until it was much later these last years. But let's go. 2006, they lose in Japan. Uh, they get beat by a, a Greek team. 
in I think it was the semifinals of the world world championships Correct. at the time. Correct. And they lose to Greece. They were they pick and rolled them to death. And Shashevsky gets at a press conference after the game. He doesn't know the names of the Greek players. He's calling them out by their numbers, which insulted sort of the international basketball community. It showed how they saw that as how little respect you have for the international game. These are are, are high-level European players. You should have known their names. I think Mike, I think his version was, I didn't want to mispronounce the names. And, right. and so um, I, I, I don't think, I don't believe for a minute Mike Krzyzewski didn't scout and didn't know who he was playing against. They just didn't defend pick and roll very well. And he had Mike D'Antoni. He had Jim Beheim on his staff. And... Uh, and there was a young young man in Athens, Greece, named Giannis Atenakumpo, who sat, watched that game with his family, and saw Scorsavitas, who was the baby Shaq, um, who was the first the first black player that Giannis had seen wearing a Greek uniform in any sport, um, and and it was inspirational to him, and sort of kicked off a little bit of his interest in basketball, and then in representing Greece. But it also was a turning point for Shashevsky. He lost in 06, and he goes to Beijing in 2018 with what was called the Redeem Team, and it was they got everybody back to play. This was not Iverson, uh, Marbury, Richard. No, no offense to Richard Jefferson. Richard, this was Kobe, LeBron, Chris Paul. Set the stage for 08, Ian. Shashevsky coming in as the Olympic coach and and what was at stake for him and, and what this sort of meant in context, I think, to his career at that time. Well, Adrian, as you know, there, there were a lot of people in the NBA, players, coaches, executives, who thought it was a mistake to hire him, to hire a college coach to, to uh, try to uh, avenge what happened, I guess, in Athens and or, or to erase the embarrassment of that, and it was a total embarrassment. I, I think, by the way, I could be wrong, but I think Popovich was also a part of that George Carl staff in 2002 that got that finished in sixth place in the World Championships in Indianapolis. Se- so, seventh, seventh place, maybe. Seventh even. place. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So Pop had really once collapsed. He had some scars. Yeah. He had a lot of scars, yeah. And uh, it was not his fault what happened in Athens. I think Pop was probably the only reason they got the, the bronze medal, frankly. Uh, he was trying to hold that thing together as much as possible. Yeah, Larry so, <laughs> Larry was out of his mind there, as I recall. Yeah. I got a call from David Stern, and I was in gymnastics, I think, in the middle of that Olympics. He was ripping uh, Larry Brown. Larry Brown and David Stern, as you know, couldn't stand each other. And uh, David Stern was saying, how do we not have LeBron James on the floor? Who, what was he, 19, 20 at the time? Yeah, they had, they had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, all 19 years old, not really playing much in that team. Yeah, so he was shredding Brown on on ten different fronts, but I do remember him ripping him for saying LeBron is already the best player in the world. Why is he not on the floor? So, uh, but anyway, let's let's go. It was a, it was a fair question. <laughs> it was a very fair question. I had no good answer to that one either. But what's interesting to me is it's it's Coach K, the, the most devastated he's ever been after a game was not at Duke. And the most pressure he ever felt in a game was not at Duke, and yet he spent 42 years of his career at Duke. The most devastated he's ever been after a game by far was after losing to Greece in the 06 World Semis. He, he actually wanted to quit basketball. He was absolutely distraught, embarrassed. He felt he let his country down as a West Point graduate. I, I know that sounds insane, but he did feel that. He also felt that they hired me to clean up Larry Brown's mess, and I just made a, a, almost as big a mess on my own 
Greece ran one play, the high pick and roll. They never adjusted. Dwight Howard hated playing for Krzyzewski. Krzyzewski hated coaching him. He wasn't defending that pick and roll. And so now you go to 08. There was so much pressure on him in that Spain game, much more pressure in the gold medal game than he ever felt in his life at Duke over 42 years in any setting, the Final Four or otherwise. So, uh, But to get there, he needed to win over LeBron James. And LeBron was not a believer in Coach K. And, and look, in 06, LeBron was on that team, and I lost a big international event with Larry Brown. Now I just lost a big event with you. Why should I buy in going into 08? So there's a scene in the book. There's a meeting in Las Vegas before the uh, Team USA is getting ready to leave and head over to, to uh, some of the exhibition overseas games before Beijing. And before the meeting, Coach K goes up to Jason Kidd, Kobe Bryant, D. Wade, and LeBron. And he asks them and tells them, listen, it's our first meeting. We're setting the tone here. I need my leaders to speak up in this meeting. I need you guys to speak up in this meeting. They all agree, okay? So the meeting starts unfolding, and Kobe speaks up, and Jay Kidd speaks up, and D. Wade speaks up, and LeBron doesn't say a word. So uh, somebody sitting near him in that room told me LeBron was actually leaning back like a kid who's not paying attention in class in his chair. And he said the meeting goes on about 45 minutes. LeBron hasn't said a word. And it got to a point where, A, it felt like Krzyzewski was just extending the meeting because there was nothing left to say after 45 minutes until LeBron finally said something. And this person was aware that LeBron had been asked to talk. And B, he said there was a power struggle in that silence between Krzyzewski and LeBron James. And it was who's going to blink first? Will Coach K end the meeting? Or will LeBron James finally speak to his teammates? So he said, he said it got it got ridiculous almost at the end. And finally, LeBron sat up in his chair and he spoke. And he gave an eloquent speech about, I, I know you know this, but basically, listen, we've all complained as NBA players about, gee, why can't I play with Jason Kidd? Why can't he be my point guard? I think he actually cited Dwight Howard, believe it or not. I want him as my five. Why can't I have him? Why can't I have Melo as my as my perimeter force and, and why can't I have Dwayne Wade on my team? And well, actually at that point, I think Dwayne Wade was a teammate. Uh, but, uh, in any event, uh, no, he wasn't, he wasn't yet. Oh, wait, so, not yet. That, the the right. seeds of the seeds of the big three in Miami <laughs> were being planted in that room. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, so he gives this great speech really. It, it, it wasn't that long, maybe, maybe three minutes that felt like nine minutes. And at the end there was silence and coach K said, amen, brother, and ended the meeting. So uh, that set a pretty good tone. There was, over time, there were still some things in Beijing. Uh, LeBron, during a, an instruction period, before practice, I believe it might have been during a practice, LeBron turned his back on Coach K. And Coach K got on him and said, look at me. We need eye-to-eye -eye contact here. I can't have you turning your back on me in, in front of the team. That was one moment. Another moment was on a bus ride to a shoot-around in Beijing, LeBron was audibly complaining about the necessity of this shoot-around. And, and other players heard it, and coaches heard it, and Krzyzewski heard it. So the bus parks, and everybody kind of heads inside, and Krzyzewski takes LeBron aside, and he said, we can't have that, man. You know, you got to understand, I'm not going to do a single thing to hurt our chances to win this gold medal. You've got to believe that I wouldn't do this shoot-around if I didn't believe it would help us win. So that was really, I think, the last moment until – the it was in Shanghai. They were playing Australia in their last preliminary game. 
And Kobe started taking some Lakers shots. Kobe <laughs> started taking some BS shots. These were non-Team USA shots. And I went back and looked at the Australia tape. I only really found about two. But everybody swore it was it was the t- that, that was the breaking point. There had been other shots leading up to that, where you were like, okay, that's a that's a BS shot. So LeBron passes Coach K on the way to the bench at some point in that Australia game, and he says, "Yo, Coach, you better fix that mother bleep." And everybody knew who he was talking about. So now Shashevsky's like, "I'm a college coach. I lost in '06. The last thing in the world I want to do is confront Kobe Bryant, the great Kobe Bryant." on shot selection (laughs) but i have no choice because we talked all along about accountability i'm holding the players accountable now lebron james is holding me accountable and so i have to act so the next day he he sort of tiptoes up to kobe bryant and he says hey can we i need to talk to you in this side room over here and i I believe they were boarding the bus to go to beijing from shanghai they were going to start that journey to to beijing and so kobe says okay they go into a side room and and k breaks out a laptop and on that laptop screen, he plays about, I don't know, six to eight BS shots that Kobe took recently, a couple at least in that Australia game. And he says, we cannot have this. We can't. You could do this with the Lakers, but you can't do this when your teammates are LeBron James and Carmelo and Jason Kidd and Dwayne Wade. You just you can't do that. And I don't have the book page in front of me, so I'll paraphrase a little bit. But Kobe looked at Coach K and said, OK, Coach, I won't. Yeah. And that was the end of it. And Krzyzewski told LeBron, he wanted LeBron to know, hey, I had that conversation. So LeBron holds Coach K accountable. Coach K holds Kobe accountable. And Kobe bails out Team USA with some crazy shots at the end of the Spain game in, for the gold medal. So I found that to be a pretty fascinating end game uh, for, the, for the gold medal. Yeah, we, it's, you, you think about that group. And, you know, Jason Kidd, you know, I was in Beijing in 08 in the lead up to it. And bringing in Jason Kidd was a big part of, you know, LeBron was still a young player. He hadn't won a championship yet. And they really assigned, I think assigned is maybe the right word, or uh, having Jason Kidd around LeBron they thought was important. And LeBron was at a very different place in his career in 08 versus 2012. Kobe still used 08 to try to sort of, play mind games with Le- with LeBron. He knew LeBron was coming. He knew LeBron was going to take his um w- was going to win championships, was going to take his maybe the mantle as the best player in the game if he hadn't already. But uh he would mess with LeBron with different mind games as they went on. But by the time they got to 2012, LeBron had already won the championship in Miami. And at that point, Kobe used Team USA to try to – he was more worried about those young guys in Oklahoma City, and he would try to get Westbrook. <laughs> Kobe would tell Westbrook, why do you keep letting KD win these scoring titles? You should be winning the scoring title. <laughs> you know? And he would get that in Westbrook's head to try to send him back to Oklahoma City to create friction, just, just for a little edge to keep the Lakers out front. That didn't last much longer. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. 
ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Ian, uh, you know, Krzyzewski stays on um, 08-12, 08-12-16 as the Olympic coach. And then he's sort of, as you start kind of rounding third at Duke, heading for home, um, the the final years of Krzyzewski, I think the one thing about him was, I think part of his greatness was his ability to adjust. And he adjusted his program. He adjusted his coaching. I think Mike D'Antoni had a great impact on Mike Krzyzewski, spending the time they did with Team USA. You saw the evolution of Duke's offense. And I, you get into this in the book where that was, if there was one criticism of Kay, it was maybe on the offensive side of the ball that, uh, you know, Quinn Snyder, who becomes the great, uh, you know, one of the best coaches in the NBA with the Jazz, they kind of offensively well before Team USA, you know, there was some friction there in maybe how that relationship, I don't think from Quinn Snyder's side, but, you know, Quinn challenged, I think, that group with a lot of ideas, a lot of different things. D'Antoni, his, you saw like just the influence Mike D'Antoni had in the NBA, you saw Duke with kind of the five out um, offense and and how they played, how they played there. But but just in that sense, Ian, that the way Shashevsky evolved um, through the years, I, I think it spoke to the success they had that he didn't just say, I don't know that Bob Knight ever evolved as a coach. I don't think his program evolved. I think he sort of, and you saw he wasn't able to evolve and he wasn't able to, you know, finish his career in a way that maybe his coaching talent should have allowed because he wouldn't, he just, he didn't evolve. Um, what did you learn about Shashevsky's ability to do that and, you know, how that impacted him staying at the very top over, you know, really essentially four different decades? Well, uh, Woj, I think he ended up getting the best of, of both worlds here. He had opportunities to take NBA jobs going back to 1990 with the Celtics, 94, the Blazers, 2004, Kobe wanted him to coach the Lakers. And so he never left. And he ended up with the best of both worlds. He stayed in college where you have greater control over winning because when you win a national title or you get to the final four, you get to the the best players in America in high school basketball are available to you and want to play for you. When you win a championship in the NBA, if you're lucky enough to do it, you're penalized. You're you're picking last in the draft. So in college, I I feel like you, you always have more control over winning. And I think he understood that with the recruiting classes he would get basically every year. And and so so he, he sort of he protects winning his winning percentage by staying in college. But then he gets the opportunity to coach the greatest NBA players in the world for three Olympics. Although Bob Knight was furious and others thought he should not have coached the second time in London in 12 and in Rio in 13. Hey, Colangelo asked him to do it. So he said yes. So he didn't force that on anybody. That's one. And, and two. Oh, by the way, he did win three gold medals and Rio was dicey. Uh, so you look at that roster. That's a losable American roster in Rio in 16. And I remember having a phone conversation with Krzyzewski where I said, you know, you're one bad half away from being Hank Ivo. And that's a lot of pressure. And you kept putting it on the line. I actually think he deserved a little credit for that mm-hmm. because 
you know, you lose in Rio and all of a sudden people start forgetting a little bit about Beijing and London and focusing on, on Rio. And that team could have been beaten. And so, but uh, going back to Beijing for a second in your question. So having that experience with LeBron and Kobe and company coming back to Duke, a couple players told me a couple of interesting things. Brian Zubek, who was sort of a traditional four year Duke player was on that 2010 national championship team. He said he felt that coach K got more player friendly, more user friendly, just being around players. He couldn't yell at uh, in that team USA experience. So uh, we felt that he actually came back a little more, a little kinder, a little gentler, not much, but we, we saw a difference. But, but his mentality about talent procurement changed because he's like, I want to coach the best players in the world, at least at this level. So I'm going one and done. I'm all in. So he chases John Wall, loses him to Kentucky. They got in late on John Wall. And then he gets Kyrie Irving. He gets Austin Rivers. People forget Austin Rivers was considered more of a slam dunk one and done guy than Kyrie Irving coming out of high school. Then he gets Jabari Parker and it's off to the races. And he goes from 2010 winning with those players already in place, the Shires and the Zubeks and a traditional Duke team to 2015 winning it all with a one and done team. So he embraced one and done in part because of that Olympic experience, particularly in Beijing. And and right, Dan Tony definitely had a big influence on him offensively. I think Beheim maybe less so on the defensive side of the ball. His willingness now, even today, you see him play zone sometimes. But I think that uh, without question, Team USA changed him. There was a lot of concern that it was going to hurt him as a Duke coach, distract him, make him a little weaker on that front. And, and I actually think it made him stronger. I know you've written a ton about this over the years, but Roy Williams told me in the book on the record, he said, I got a lot of complaints from coaches about the recruiting advantage he got out of Team USA. I had a crazy amount of coaches calling me saying, this is, this is BS that this guy is allowed to use Team USA to his advantage at Duke. And I told them, hey, what do you want me to do about it? And B, I'm affected more than you because I got to deal with this guy in my backyard. So obviously he had a, the, the Team USA thing was a, had a major impact on Duke recruiting in a positive way for him. It, it did. Not just the visuals, not just the people see you coaching Kobe, see you coaching LeBron. There's an apparatus, there's an infrastructure to USA basketball that really runs right through all the best players in the country where they get on the 16 and under team, the 17 and under team, USA basketball camps. He had access to all of that. And um, it was an advantage. And coaches, I think you talked about the one uh, one of the teams Billy Donovan was coaching and Shashevsky shows up at one of their, you know, camps, you know, essentially for a younger team USA team that had nothing to do with the national team, the Olympic team. And all of a sudden they turn around and Shashevsky's over in the corner, you know, getting one-on-ones with some key recruits. <laughs> and it was as if I'm not going to let Billy Donovan and who, whomever else was on his staff. I think maybe Shaka Smart was on that staff. He was a young coach at VCU maybe then. And listen, Anybody else would have used the advantage. You know, I know John Calipari didn't like it. John would have been in that corner too, as would have Roy Williams, anyone else. But to suggest it wasn't an advantage, it was. And I do think it was part of the reason Mike didn't let go of the job because it did give him access um, on a lot of levels to to um, closed audiences with the best young players in the country, access that perhaps you couldn't get, you can't get out in the recruiting trail, but you could get through USA basketball. 
And that's just a fact. That's just a fact. <laughs> you know, you wrote a column, uh, I believe for Yahoo at the time, about this. And, and you were 100% right. It was a great column. I know you've done more reporting on this than, than anyone. And I think some months later, ESPN, I was at ESPN.com at the time, asked me to do a piece on has, has Mike Krzyzewski become basically John Calipari as a one and done guy. And I said, okay. So I called uh, Coach K and he did call me back. And I, I brought up your column. And I said, hey, listen, I mean, you can't deny that it's an advantage. So I, I think his only way of answering that was to acknowledge that you were right. It was an advantage, but he called it an earned advantage. So his spin on it was, yeah, I have an advantage. But what if I lost and I, I was Hank Iba, I'd have no advantage. In fact, it would be a negative. I'd get killed. I was like, well, I'd still take my chances uh, having LeBron James and Kobe Bryant on my side that I'm not going to lose and I'm going to get that advantage. And that's exactly what happened. So. His spin was, it's an earned advantage. Yes, it's an advantage. And if I had lost, they'd be using it against me. So I, I found that to be you know, pretty funny. Uh, true, I guess, but funny. And so I wrote a piece about, you know, Coach K's become John Calipari and he's embracing it. And certainly Team USA has been a big advantage, as you reported. And there was no denying that without question. The book is Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, Harper Collins, it is out. Uh, you can start to get it everywhere. Obviously, you can find it online. The author, of course, is Ian O'Connor. It is another piece of remarkable work by Ian. I cannot wait to finish uh, this book. I am uh, very confident we're going to see this on the bestseller list probably right out of the gate and for some time to come. Ian, congrats on the book, and, and thanks for taking the time to jump in and talk about it. Hey, congratulations, Adrian, on, on everything. Your staggering success in this business. I'm very proud of you, and it was an honor to be on your, your podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, New York Times bestselling author Ian O'Connor, on his new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also listen to the Low Post with Zach Lowe, the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst, and the Adam Schefter Podcast with the great Adam Schefter. We'll catch you next time. You shouldn't have to worry when you buy tickets to your next big event. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater events near you. Game Time is the only ticketing app that gives you complete peace of mind with your purchase. See the views from your seat before you buy, so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the start of the event, and even an hour after it starts, it's the place to find last-minute seats. And the game time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Take the guesswork out of buying tickets with game time. Download the game time app, create an account, and use code WOJ, W-O-J, for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, and redeem code WOJ, W-O-J, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed.